Now, the one thing we know is if we keep on doing it the way we've always done it, we're all going to die. The climate emergency has turned that risk equation upside down. Now, if we do it the way we've always done it, we have a 100% risk of generating the wrong outcomes. And in fact, if we do not innovate, we will die. So innovation suddenly is becoming the lower risk option. That is a cultural change that the sector isn't, is barely beginning to get to grips with. Welcome to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name's Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience building the future of our planet. For this episode, we welcome Paul Campion, CEO at TRL, one of the leading organizations specializing in research, development, and innovation within the transport sector. We dive into the history of transport sector R&D and how it's changed over time, the role of innovation in the future infrastructure market, TRL's role in the ecosystem, and lots more. One quick point before I pass over to Paul. If I may ask a favour, if you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it really helped promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now, let's welcome Paul. I currently am the CEO of TRL. TRL stood for Transport Research Laboratories. I'll come back to that in just one second. Look, the majority of my career has been spent in digital transformation of companies. That's where I start. So that's, that's my sort of go-to model of how we can make the world a better place. Whilst I was at IBM, which I was at for a long time, I specialized in the travel and transport industries. And so when I left IBM, I went to join an organization called the Transport Systems Catapult. The Catapults are a series of government-funded organizations whose job is to grow the UK economy by facilitating and supporting innovation in particular market segments. TRL was established actually 90 years ago this year as the government's road research laboratory. So for 60 years, it was a government research department. My favorite factoid about the organization is that TRL invented the zebra crossing. And I love that, not least because until someone told me that, it didn't occur to me that zebra crossing needed inventing. But it's indicative of the way that TRL as an organization has been central to the creation of the transport world that we now live in. It was privatized 25 or 30 years ago, and now we are a completely commercial, self-supporting, public purpose enterprise. So we're not, it's not that we're non-profit making. If we're not making profit, we're not quite doing it right. We're non-profit distributing. All our surplus get reinvested to drive forward our mission, which is to make transport cleaner, better, uh, more efficient, more accessible for everyone. Over the course of your career, and particularly as your role as CEO now, you must have a really broad perspective and, and visibility of, of what the sectors look like over time. Really interested for your thoughts on how you think the transport sector's R&D priorities have changed over the time you've been working there. Yeah, it's, well, it's a really important question. I mean, first of all, let's, let's try and unpack the idea of the transport sector a bit, because the, the reason I'm so fascinated by it, the reason why I'm so passionate about it, I, I think that may come across as we go on, the reason why I'm spending my time in it is because transport is central to human flourishing. Transport is really the, the job of moving molecules around on the coast of the Earth's surface. And there's really no part of our lives as humans that isn't mediated in some way or other by transport. We can't take part in the economic life, the social life, the educational life, the political life of 
our communities and our country without moving around. And by the way, if we're not moving around, then the things that we consume, the things that we use have to move to us. So transport touches every single part of our lives. The clothes you're wearing now, the, the, the sandwich you have for lunch, it came to you by, by transport. It was created through the complex webs of transport. For a rule of thumb, I don't know, 10% of the value of anything you use or consume or do is the embedded transport in it. So it's so central, but because it's so central, it's, it's, it's got a, a huge amount of complexity, many layers in it. So there's the physicals, the infrastructure, there's the roads, the railways, the vehicles, the cars, there are supporting industries. A significant part of insurance's business is tied up with stuff that moves around and, and, and has the risk of bumping into, into other things. So it, it's very difficult to talk about transport as a whole. We need to zero in to which parts we were talking. Back to your question. R&D in many parts of the transport world has been pretty much non-existent for long periods of time. Even today, if we look at, let's say, the roads sector, so the government the government owns the roads on our behalf. Roads are a public service delivered free at point of, point of use. And so the government's taking the responsibility to pay for the creation or update of those. The industry, we call it the construction industry, the infrastructure industry, that, that does that build and construction works on really narrow margins, net margins, two or 3% typically. And the R&D budget associated with that entire industry is really very small. And there's a whole set of structural issues around that. Vehicles, a bit different. There are often consumer products, much, much higher R&D budgets, much more innovation goes in there. But if I zoom right back and ask myself, how does the sector change? Well, a time traveler from 1923 would recognize pretty much exactly the transport world we see around us, wouldn't they? You know, so there are quite a lot of aspects of the, of the transport sector which don't seem to have done very quickly. And that's in great contrast to other industries. I mean, you know, you know better than me, but publishing, music, even groceries nowadays, they innovate, they, innovate, they change their form, They're, they've been radically affected by digitalization in a way that, frankly, a lot of transport has. So how does that R&D really penetrate? And the answer is it works in a highly regulated environment. And there are big safety constraints on transport systems, quite rightly, quite appropriately. It can make it quite difficult for innovators to, to, to bring innovation into the market. And typically what I hear from, from startups, from entrepreneurs, from SMEs, by the way, medium and large companies as well, is just how difficult it is to get the transport sector to adopt new ideas and to buy into new products. And as tough as it is to think of an idea, to do the engineering, to get the funding, I think the biggest challenge that a lot of entrepreneurs and innovators have in the transport sector is a route to market, is actually finding someone by they produce. I think that route to market point is a really interesting and important one. And I've experienced it myself in, from an early stage startup in, it's di often difficult to understand the opportunity for innovation and how as a startup, you can get into the industry. And I know that through your, your roles at Transport Systems, Casper, TRL now, and, and your Innovate UK hats, you, you must see the challenges that some of these companies have. So I guess thinking about it from an industry's perspective, what areas or capabilities or technologies do you think offer the most impact that we're not yet capitalizing on enough? 
Oh, where do I start? I mean, look, I think the the high level, the answer is digitalization. Digital technologies, right? You know, I think the transport sector is lagging in its um, uptake of those across the piece. But I think also we we need to recognize that there, there are some drivers which are new and that can help us maybe to see the problems in a different way and perhaps help us to tell different stories. Decarbonization is a non-negotiable deadline. And we are going to have to, as an industry and as a society, come to terms with the, with the radical change that's going to be required to do with that. Transport is in the UK and in many developed economies, the single larger carbon emitting sector. About a quarter of the UK's carbon emissions are from the transport sector. And by the way, they're not going down. The UK has done a great job overall at beginning to uh, transition to a low or zero carbon economy. But the transport sector is lagging and it's not moving as quickly as it needs to. So there's an opportunity to think about the assumptions that the sector makes in a different way. It can often be a very conservative sector. I've said that before. And a lot of those reasons are driven by standards, but also by the very conservative engineering, engineering culture driven by safety aspects and driven by the regulated nature of many of the parts of the sector. And that's probably right and as it should be. But we're going to have to, as a society, recognize that the risk equation has turned upside down. Civil engineers learn in university how to build bridges and they are told indirectly, even even if not directly, you know, we learn how to make bridges that don't fall down. The one thing you must never do is innovate around that recipe because the most important thing is that the bridge doesn't fall down. And uh, there's a search for the for the sector as a whole, which is it's extremely driven by the idea that business as usual, the way we did it yesterday, is the low-risk way forward. But now, the one thing we know is if we keep on doing it the way we've always done it, we're all going to die. That the climate emergency has turned that risk equation upside down. Now, if we do it the way we've always done it, we have a 100% risk of generating the wrong outcomes. And in fact, if we do not innovate, we will die. So innovation suddenly is becoming the low, lower risk option. That is a cultural change that the sector isn't, is barely beginning to get to grips with. But I think there's things for the, 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 the things for innovators, the things for entrepreneurs to, to, to get to grips with that. There are ways in. And sure, a lot of the change that needs to happen is in the, the softer, non-technical barriers to innovation, its standards, its procurement, its culture, its views about risk, its views about finance and how business cases are made. But, but there is this inversion that's happened and there are ways in, I think, or will increasingly be ways in based on the fact the world's turned upside down. And frankly, we've got no choice now but to innovate, innovate like billion. I completely agree. And you must see a lot of forms of innovation coming from, say, SMEs, startups, other research centers in the ecosystem. And I'm really interested to understand TRL's role within this wider ecosystem. What type of collaborative efforts do you, do you take with, with some of these other partners? So as I mentioned, TRL is a public purpose enterprise, right? We're, 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 trying to, we're trying to do good. We're trying to do good in a way that pays the bills, of course. We're trying to do good. That gives us, that and our governments, we don't have shareholders. We're, you know, we're, we're owned by a foundation gives us a sort of a, an independent role in the center of this ecosystem. We sit somewhere between the public sector, the private sector and academia. And 
So we like to think of ourselves as innovators, but we are partnering all day and every day with all sorts of other organizations. And you know, we're only a little company. There's no way that we can we could possibly come up with or, or adopt all of the innovation this industry needs. We can only be affected by working with people. We do so in lots of different ways. The the early stage, we enthusiastically work in government-funded collaborative R&D projects. And if any of your listeners are you know, trying to start up an idea and are not familiar with the sort of competitions that Innovate UK runs, you mentioned that already, but some other parts of the public sector, then I strongly encourage you to do it. If you're, you know, if you're only a little bit lucky, you can get the government to pay you know, up to 50% of the R&D you are going to do anyway. And it will also put you in the way of, of, of partnering with other organizations, many of them, you know, the large organizations, precisely the sort of companies who can fall the root market for, for SMEs. So that's one end. The, the lot of the work we do is the net on you know, public sector procurement, traditional frameworks, the paperwork burden of getting into the roots of markets to organizations like National Highways is a real, can be a real burden to a small company. But there are companies like ours who are already on those frameworks. And so finding companies like us to partner with is, is a, can be a very effective way. And we actually, around our Smart Mobility Living Lab in East London, with a public road testbed, we think the only one in the world in a mega city. We run an innovation community specifically to, to bring together large and small companies from a variety of sectors to stand up these sorts of ideas and to build those collaborations. That's what we do. We're by far not the only organization in the market that, that does that sort of thing. If anyone's listening and wants to get in touch with us, you know, drop me an email. But if it's not us, then we can certainly introduce you to you know, other people around the place who are doing similar things, perhaps in slightly different areas or just have in a capacity that we don't have. Amazing. That's super helpful for folks listening and a very practical, clear next step for anyone listening with a few ideas. So it sounds as though there's an open invitation there. This the rhapsody is, yeah. So thinking about the, these R&D efforts, these initiatives there, some of the ones that you've described, how suitable for cutting edge innovation do you think this process is? The answer inevitably is it depends. Let me take an example. So we have just completed a project with, with Nissan and the University of Nottingham and a couple of other collaborators around the Smart Mobility Living Lab. And Nissan were testing their autonomy stack. So they develop, they're developing self-driving cars, autonomous cars in three locations, Yokohama, Silicon Valley, and Woolwich. And they're doing it in Woolwich because that's where the Smart Mobility Living Lab is. And there's a set of things they can do in Woolwich they can't do in Silicon Valley and Yokohama because, because London. Because of the complexity of the environment there, the way that we've got a test facility embedded in a real community. And we've been developing some, some leading edge vehicle to infrastructure communications to literally next self-driving cars see round corners. And it's a fascinating project. I'd love to tell you more about it. But let me come back to, uh, to your question. That project was, what, 18 months project, two-year project? You think, oh my God, you know, two years. My VC wants an exit in three years. I can't wait that long. And of course that's true. But equally, it's not as if you, we started the project and then nothing happened. And then we got an answer in two years. 
It takes two years to do a whole set of tasks and you're continually learning, right? And, you know, were you the startup working with, for example, Nissan, the reason you're doing it actually is to sell your stuff to Nissan, I would say, nine times out of 10. And so that process of being in conversation with your potential customer, your potential route to market, understanding how they work, understanding the network inside the organization of politics is probably at least as important as the technological learnings. And that's going to happen at human speed, not additional speed. So it horses for courses. Yeah, I think that's a completely fair point because ultimately these are pretty complex challenges that you're working on and complex challenges take quite a few brains around the table working on it. And these things do take time. And I think looking at some of the output from TRL and, and some of your, some of the other partners within the ecosystem, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to see the evolution of the transport sector, hydrogen fueled vehicles, autonomous vehicles, intelligent infrastructure. I mean, there's just so much to, to look at and just to feel quite excited about. I know it's fantastic stuff. I mean, if I could say the, the, there is a danger here that because we're a startup, because we are, you know, a VC fund, because we're wanting software or whatever it might be to therefore think that the right story to tell ourselves is, you know, Google or Amazon. And the Silicon Valley discourse is all about consumer offerings. It's about viral uptake and it's about monopolizing a proposition. That is the, the, the transport networks, the transport systems, not like that. Right? I mean, let's look at Uber. Uber has never made a prop, in my view, probably never will. And it seems now a, a really a shadow of its former self. Why is that? Is because the model proved very difficult to deploy in a regulated, complex environment like the transport system. As I said at the very beginning, the reason I'm passionate about transport, the reason why I think it's so important and so rewarding to work in, is precisely because the wins are so potentially big. I don't mean necessarily financially big, although an awful lot of money does go through the transport, per se. But I mean the, the societal wins, the ability to make tomorrow's world a reality. Someone's got to invent the future and, you know, we're volunteering to have a go. And I honestly think that's such a good place to finish. What does the next year look like for you? The next year for me? Oh, good work. Good work. I tell you, we, we, the thing is, there's so much rest in this area. We're, you know, we've got all sorts of great ideas around the Smart Liberty Living Lab. We're hoping to cut a deal to get 5G onto the streets to build on um, the work we've done around intelligent infrastructure with the likes of Nissan to use our learnings to put down some commercial services in some other parts of the country, work with some potential partners to build out across different transport modes and increase the breadth of that. We've got a software business, which is trying to transform the asset management platform for national highways, but also for the highways authorities of some very interesting bits of the world. We've got all sorts of discussions going on in India and Southeast Asia and the Middle East. In Africa, we're doing all sorts of work with development banks on sustainable infrastructure, really helping low and middle income countries to leapfrog to more effective networks of communication to really help change life outcomes in you know, all sorts of ways. At any given time, we've probably got I don't know, 90 or 100 projects. There's so much going on. It's a privilege, honestly, to be a part of this. And um, I'm really proud to be part of the team that's doing this. Stuff. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. 
Thanks so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And with that, I'll leave you to it. Stay tuned for next week's episode. And in the meantime, please do let me know your thoughts on LinkedIn as I'd love to hear them. Thanks and goodbye.